0: Well, it's, it's so good to be with you this morning. In Easter, Church of the Resurrection sends her greetings. Um, it, some of you might be slowly starting to recognize me. What's this guy doing here again? Uh, so we're going to dive into Romans. But Before we do, uh, I'm struck. Have you ever noticed how all of your favorite stories involve orphans? Uh, if you think it through, those stories you grew up with as a child, probably the movies you love now, uh, Let's take Disney, for example, right? Coming out this year alone, we've got Aladdin coming out soon. What is Aladdin? But a story about an orphan. We've got Lion King coming out this summer. Don't want to ruin anything for you, but uh, Simba's going to lose a parent. It's going to be very traumatic. You're, you're going to cry at some point. Uh, think about some of the superhero movies. You've got superheroes like Iron Man, who is orphaned. Spider-Man, who is orphaned. Or I think about Ray from Star Wars, one of the biggest movie blockbusters of all times, the newest Star Wars movies, and it's all centered around Ray wrestling with this lack of a family, right? Who is she? Where does she belong? I think the reason why orphan stories connect so much to us is because you and I, in our own ways, uh, even if we have biological families, we connect to this sense of orphanedness, maybe even what I would call spiritual Orphanness. Orphans are on a quest looking to belong, and the three things that they're really specifically looking for are a status, right? Orphans in every story are trying to figure out who, who am I and what am I worth? Orphans are also looking for security. They want to know, am I safe here? Are these my people? Is this my family? And orphans are also looking for an inheritance, right? A birthright, something that They can claim as their own some legacy or power or gift that they can pass on and use for the good of others. Orphan stories connect to us because we ourselves, in some way, connect to the spiritual orphanness. As Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome, I think Paul knew he was writing to people who themselves felt spiritually orphaned. When you go back and think about the early church that was taking place in Rome, on the one hand, you had Jewish people, Jewish believers who were coming from this minority community, right, that had all kinds of rituals and religious customs, and yet these Jewish people have come into belief, to faith in Jesus Christ, and they're trying to figure out what is my status now in this new community, right? Where do I belong here? Am I secure? How do I know that I'm here? Uh, what is my inheritance here? How do I make sense of what I'm receiving? But similarly, in addition to the Jewish people, you also had Gentiles, pagans, and you probably had some who were upper class Roman elites, the politicians, the business owners. And you also had the poor, the working class, the men and women who maybe were slaves or servants, and they're all gathered together, and they too want to know, where do I belong? What is my status? Am I, do I have security here? What is my inheritance? So as Paul is writing to this church in Rome, I think he has an eye towards the spiritual orphan. And this passage, these three verses particularly, Paul is going to address what it's like now that we are part of the family of God. So look with me at verse 14 in Romans 8. Look on your bulletin. I'm just going to read this again for us. Verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Okay, so Paul, Paul begins, and he, he clearly is giving some nod, some reference to Israel's story, right? Israel was enslaved. They, they were slaves in Egypt. They were under Pharaoh, who was their master. And yet, in Deuteronomy 4, or in Exodus 4, Deuteronomy 32, God is going to call Israel his children, going to say they're like his firstborn son, and God's going to lead Israel out of slavery. So, so there's clearly an Israel story that Paul's getting at, but, but Paul seems to be referring to something more immediate and present than simply what happened way back then with Israel. Paul calls it a spirit of slavery, that we're not given into a spirit of slavery. What does Paul mean by a spirit of slavery? Well, a spirit of slavery, I think, takes place whenever a good, something that begins good becomes your master, right? It really could be anything. Anything that's good can start to get a hold of you, can start to grip and control you, can actually enslave you. Uh, there is a story I came across as I was thinking about stories about orphans that you may remember from your lit classes back in high school or college. It's a Charles Dickens classic Oliver Twist. Anyone remember Oliver Twist from back in the day? So, in Oliver Twist, Oliver is an orphan. He's born to a mysterious father. He doesn't know his, who his father is. His mother dies in labor, and Oliver is going to pass from family to family, foster parent to foster parent. And eventually, he's going to end up working in a factory. And as Oliver's sort of wrestling with this orphanness and finally gets free of this factory, he does what most orphans do he heads to the city, right? He heads into London we think about cities. Cities tend to do a phenomenal job attracting orphans, don't they? Like, you never show up to the city with your family. I think about when I showed up to Chicago at 18. I was dropped off by my parents to go study at Moody Bible Institute. I sat in the dorm room. My dad had helped me unpack all my stuff, and he said, all right, son, I'm heading to the airport. said goodbye, and as I sat there looking out at Chicago's skyline, I saw all of this possibility and yet, I also felt for the first time, like, man, I am alone. <laughs> like, there's no family here. I'm, I'm going to have to make it. I'm going to have to figure this out. So as Oliver's heading towards the city, he hears of this gentleman he's told of that can offer him lodging and a place to stay and doesn't ask for anything in return. Isn't that the, the invitation every orphan is looking for? Like, man, how great would it be to just have lodging and belonging and they're not going to ask for anything in return. And yet as Oliver goes to meet this gentleman who brings him into his house, he quickly discovers that instead of a reputable business, this gentleman is running a gang of orphans. And this gang is wandering the streets of London and they're pickpocketing and they're stealing. And now Oliver is a part of it. And every time Oliver tries to get out, the gang just keeps drawing him back in. Even as Oliver tries to go into find new families and enter new communities every time the gang's right there waiting for him. And Fagan, the name of the gang leader, is the master who won't release him. So when Paul talks about a spirit of slavery, I wonder for us today what goods in our life become our masters. I I tend to think of jobs. Jobs can start so good, right? They, They offer a position. They offer stability. Maybe our jobs even have a sense of community, like we can fit in here, and yet so quickly, jobs can become these all-consuming masters, right? We're giving all of our time, we're giving all of our energy, it's consuming all of our thought, controls us. Or a community of friends can sometimes be that good that becomes our master. Uh, I think about my brother who in college found himself something of a spiritual orphan and decided to join a fraternity, Now, fraternities aren't inherently evil or wrong, but as my brother went to this specific fraternity, it quickly became just that sense of belonging for him, that sense of safety. But all they would do is party or drink or uh, try to make it on campus. And as my brother was wrestling, uh, as college was finishing, he just said, I have no friends but this fraternity, right? It's like this good that started as this community for me to belong to, and now it's like I can't escape it? Do you have a good that has become a master? Something that started with some initial offer, and yet now you've found yourself wrestling with this spirit of slavery that Paul is describing. When Paul talks about the spirit of slavery, he says it's always going to lead to fear. And that makes sense, because when we are enslaved, we're always either afraid of letting our master down, right? We're afraid of not doing enough, not gaining approval, not continuing to belong to whatever that good is that was offering us, or we're afraid that that master ultimately will let us down, right? That that, whatever that good was that was initially promised, it's not actually going to be there waiting for us when we really settle in. So what does Paul say the spiritual orphan needs? What do we need as we find ourselves wrestling with this spirit of slavery that leads to fear? Well, Paul has incredibly good news for the church in Rome. He has incredibly good news for us, too. Let's finish verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Spirit of adoption as sons. I'm going to pause here with this adoption for just a moment. Because we hear adoption we think of adoption that would take place today, a, a, Decision before a court, a new child that's kind of brought into a family and that the family gathers around. It's beautiful whenever adoption occurs. But for Paul, there's all of this Roman weight, this Roman background, even this Roman law that solidifies around adoption. So in Roman custom, the father was everything. The father determines what your social standing is. The father determines if you are a citizen or not a citizen. The father determines if you can enter into politics or whether you need to stay as a baker or blacksmith. The father is going to determine who you can marry. If your father is not high enough on the social totem pole, you cannot marry into a higher totem pole. The father is everything. But what would often happen is that some fathers would find themselves without a male heir to pass their standing, their status, onto. And so in fact... Crazy to believe, but in Paul's day, three of the emperors, including Caesar Augustus and Nero, are going to be adopted sons. The Caesar himself will have to adopt to pass on the kingdom to the next child. And so in Rome, if you were adopted, you gained every right, status, and privilege that that family possessed. When you're adopted, it's permanent, it's sealed, it's irrevocable, and everything Is yours. And so the way that adoption would take place is there would be a private and then a public component to the ceremony. First, in private, the new family, the father would come and he would bring money or some sort of good to exchange. And normally, if the child that was being adopted had any sort of debt, sometimes if the child was perhaps even a slave, the father would offer this good, this money, to ransom the child, to pay for the child, to bring the child. into the father's family. There'd be witnesses there to make sure that this had happened an exchange had occurred. And then once the exchange happened, the father would bring the son, the new son, and he would go before a court, before the magistrate, and he'd bring his witnesses as well. And the witnesses would tell the magistrate, yes, this exchange happened, all the debts are paid, and the magistrate would declare, you are now the son of this father. You are now fully, privilege to all rights, all status, all access that the family possesses. So as you sit with this, I mean, Paul is having a theological field day, right? Paul, I can't get over how significant this adoption ceremony is. He's going to talk about it here in Romans. He's going to talk about it in Galatians. He's going to talk about it in Ephesians. And for Paul, this adoption captures what happened for us. And captures that we ourselves, as Paul's going to talk about in Galatians, we were slaves, right? We were slaves to sin and to death. It's like we had these masters who have been controlling our lives, who have full ownership over us, and they've been oppressing us, holding us down, uh, keeping us from all that God intended, and yet God, as a father, has come to ransom us. God has come to free us from slavery, and yet It's going to happen in the most audacious way you could ever imagine. I mean, Roman citizens would have been scandalized by Paul's suggestion that the Father not only pays for our slavery, but that he offers his own son. Can you imagine? Father offers his son for us. He's going to ransom and redeem us. And then, as Paul's going to talk about all over the place, we're going to come before the judge And we're going to be declared righteous, justified, a son or daughter of the living God. This is breathtaking. What orphan doesn't long, long to come into a family, right? What orphan doesn't long to have a father come and pay, purchase, redeem them, bring them into his family, offer him everything, everything that the father has. It's incredible. And so Paul is going to give us, in the rest of these verses, these three verses, he's going to give us three benefits, three privileges specifically that adoption is going to give us. So what's the first one? It's the privilege of status. An adopted son or daughter has the status of their father. So look with me at the end of verse 15, Paul's going to say, you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We have status. Now as a child, as a son or a daughter, we have this privileged access. We can call on the Father anytime we want. Have you ever uh, been in a party where you have no status? Like you're the friend of a friend and you show up and you don't really know anyone and no one seems really interested in talking to you. Or my favorite is when I have been invited to a wedding where I don't know the bride and groom and you're like sitting there through the ceremony, and you're not really connected to anything that's going on. And then there's the line, and the bride walks up to you. and You just smile, like, I'm really glad to be here. And the bride kind of nods at you, like, you really shouldn't be here. <laughs> yeah. And then moves along. That's what it's like to have no status. Uh, what Paul is describing here, though, the status of a child, is what happens whenever I'm with families who have young children. We're sitting around in the living room. You maybe had this happen to you. And as you're sitting and these adults are talking, all of a sudden a child comes running in, right? And it's the daughter. And the daughter runs up to her father. And she's, she's too nervous, right, to say anything in front of all of these strange adults. And so she, she tugs on her father's sleeve. And any time this happens, the father always smiles, leans in, and the daughter starts to whisper something in her father's ear. This is what Paul's talking about. We have the status that access to our our Father, to God himself. This phrase Paul's going to give us that we cry out, Abba, Father. It's a unique phrase. It's an intimate phrase. It's not formal. It's not rigid. In fact, Abba is an Aramaic term that in English would be something like Daddy, right, or Papa. And as uh, the scholars have analyzed this phrase that Paul uses, Abba, to God, Uh, History of religion scholars will note that you can check any religion across all of time before this verse is written. And there is no single recording of any religion being so bold, so audacious to describe this kind of status that we would have in praying. So the Egyptians wouldn't even dare to think that their gods were their father or mother. The Greeks would talk about Zeus like he was the father of all humanity, but they would never, there's no recording of any Greek ever praying to Zeus as a papa, as a daddy. Even the Jewish people who claimed fully that they were the the children, the firstborn son of God. In all of the Old Testament, there's no moment where any prayer records a prayer to the Abba, to the daddy. And so as scholars are sort of scratching their heads saying, what would cause Paul to be so bold? Like how... Why would he invent this? Where would he get this from? Uh, Inevitably, they note that there is actually one occurrence where we find the use of Abba before this letter to the Romans. And it's going to take place in the book of Mark, Mark 14, where Jesus is on his knees in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is at this sort of fever pitch moment of distress. He's so uh, just... Anxious that he's sweating blood. And yet there in Mark 14, 36, the prayer that comes to Jesus' lips is, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. There it is. I I mean, as commentators reflect on this, they say the only place Paul could have gotten this from is Jesus himself. And the church, as they reflected on Jesus' prayer here, started to wonder, do we too have this kind of status? The, the Abba status, that when we are distressed, we too could cry out, we could tug on the sleeve of our daddy God, and pray to him. It's The first benefit we receive in adoption is that of status. The second is going to be security. The security of our adoption. Look with me at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Clearly, Paul here is alluding to this Roman custom, right? Isn't that kind of beautiful that what Paul is saying is the Spirit himself, the Spirit was there when the exchange occurred. The Spirit was there at the cross, right? The Spirit was there as the Son was offered for the sake of the world, that you and I could be brought in to the family of God. So it's the Spirit that was there that's now before the judge testifying, giving witness, saying, these are your children. This is the, these are the children, the beloved sons and daughters of God. It's the sort of intimate testimony. Paul's going to say the Spirit's testifying to our spirit. It's happening within us. that The Spirit is whispering to us, speaking to us, our beloved sonship, our beloved daughtership. And yet, as I, as I was wrestling with this verse specifically, it's interesting to me that Paul doesn't just refer to it as a one-and-done testimony, right? The Spirit doesn't just declare at some moment of salvation, like, this is, the, this is the child, you are the daughter, you're the son. No, instead, the Spirit continues testifying, right? It's like the Spirit's always testifying, the Spirit's always giving witness to us. As, as I was wrestling with why this would be the case, like, why do we need all of this witnessing? Why do we need all this testimony? I'm drawn to the conclusion that adoption, particularly for spiritual orphans, is incredibly hard. My, my wife and I last fall got to watch this movie, it's really great, called Instant Family, that kind of chronicles this couple, Mark Wahlberg and Rose Byron, who are adopting three siblings. And the movie just does a great job capturing that sort of messy complexity that adoption holds. The, the couple are living this very quiet, beautiful existence, right, a house that's marvelous, quiet evenings, nice routines, going out to eat, and then they bring these three siblings in, adopt them into their family, and everything's exploded, right? It's chaos, it's crazy, stuff's broken, it's a mess, and yet they're loving it. So adoption is hard on parents, Um, it takes a toll, certainly, but adoption is far more difficult on the children themselves, right? particularly for spiritual orphans. And so the movie captures how the youngest, the four-year-old, will just wake up screaming in the middle of the night because she doesn't know if she's going to be in the same bed the next day. The six-year-old, the boy, will flinch every time the father comes to even you know, touch him on the arm or offer him any sort of physical comfort. And then the, the 15-year-old, the teenager, is just constantly trying to run away. She's just constantly trying to get out of this house And even though this is the best family that they have ever experienced, it's like she just wants to go back to what's been before. And so, for us as spiritual orphans, I think we too have such a hard time with our adoption, don't we? I mean, the moments that we flinch when we fear that God is going to punish us, or the moments that we we suddenly find ourselves trying to escape, just to go back to these old masters, to go back to the old gang where we used to belong. And what Paul wants us to know is that there is a security of the Spirit himself who's going to keep whispering to you. He's going to keep offering testimony. He's going to tell you over and over again, you are the beloved daughter. You are the beloved son of God. You have status. You're safe here. You're secure here. Finally, the the final benefit of our adoption is our inheritance. Paul's going to end really strongly with this point. If you look at verse 17, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. I, I mean, again, Paul is sort of drawing out the logical conclusion of the Roman law, if you're adopted, you have access to everything. Everything of the Father's is yours now. It's all yours. And Paul elsewhere is just going to talk over and over again about this treasure in the field that's waiting for us, these spiritual blessings that are being poured out on us. I think specifically, for those of us who have been spiritually orphaned, one of the great riches one of the great inheritances we receive in our adoption is that of a spiritual family in the church, right? That here at the church, for those of us who are fatherless, we find a heavenly father who speaks to us intimately, truthfully, who will offer us direction, who will strengthen us when we're afraid, who will correct us when we walk the wrong way. The church offers us a spiritual mother here in the gathering where we are literally fed at a table, right? We're nourished and strengthened. We're protected when we feel afraid. And yet here in the flesh and blood people of the church, we begin to find spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers. This has been my journey for the last two years especially. I Just this last week, had a small intimate moment. I'm I'm working in an office at Resurrection, and Deacon Val McIntyre, who's one of the spiritual mothers of the church, she just comes and knocks on my door, pokes her head in and says, hey, John, I just, just wondering how you're doing. This is, this is the spiritual mother that I need, the spiritual mother who's there to, to check in, to love me. And that's what Emmanuel here offers. There are spiritual mothers and fathers who can care for you in your orphanedness, who can care for you in offering direction and strengthening and provision. And here also you can find spiritual brothers and sisters that community, that family, that richness that we're longing for. But Paul has one final caveat to our inheritance as we look at the end of verse 17. If we are fellow heirs with Christ, then we will suffer with him, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified in him. I think here is the great catch, the great roadblock for those of us who have been spiritually orphaned. Right, Whenever we come across suffering, our suffering freaks us out. Suffering freaks me out. Every time I experience it, it's like, oh, am I being punished again? Is God going to reject me? Right? Do I actually belong here? Is the status going to be revoked? Uh, is my family going to take off? I, I think orphans get so confused when suffering is presented, and yet Paul is trying to offer you this immense encouragement saying, listen, when you're part of the family of God, suffering is actually part of your inheritance. Suffering is part of how you share with Christ. You share with Him in picking up your cross. You share with Him in suffering with the family, not apart from the family of God. And as we suffer with Him, Paul says, we're going to be glorified with Him. We're going to be lifted up just as the Son was lifted up. And So, as as we close... I wonder for you this morning if there are some here who have been on the journey of the spiritual orphan. You have been on a quest, perhaps, of your own. Maybe there was something here in the city that drew you, or maybe you found yourself here in the city, and like me at 18, you had this moment of going, man, I am alone. And the invitation, the gift of God's word, is that he wants to invite you into the family. In fact, he wants to invite you into this family. He wants you to have a home. He wants you to have status. He wants you to know that you're secure. He wants to give you an inheritance here, even now, an inheritance that will involve suffering, but that also will involve joy and glory. For others of you, as you've been on this journey of embracing your adoption, maybe there's a benefit this morning that God especially wants you to receive that benefit of status where we can tug on the sleeve of our Heavenly Father, that benefit of security where the Spirit himself is going to be testifying, even through this table that we're about to share in, that you are God's beloved daughter, you are God's beloved son. My prayer for you this morning, Emmanuel, is that you would more deeply know the riches of the inheritance of being children of God.